I think I've shared with a few people, I've been recently studying through Hebrews, and um, it's a great book to read through. One of the concepts that you keep picking up when you're studying through that book is that concept of Jesus Christ is better. He's better in every way. And He's the better high priest. And, and sitting down thinking, I know I had to preach this week, and I uh, was thinking about Jesus Christ being a better high priest and thinking back through when Pastor Lindsay had taught on the tabernacle, on the temple, and, and that whole concept. I'll never forget him talking about how they had the tabernacle set up and the priest was going in to the Holy of Holies to present the offering for the atonement for the sins of the camp. And everybody was kind of sitting in anticipation, waiting to see what's going to happen. What's going to happen when he goes in? And just a, a great picture when he taught on that. Those of you that were here when he taught, can, oh, I'm sure you'll never forget it. And thinking about this tabernacle set up here, and there's these people camped all around it. And when he came out, there would have been this uproar of people because they were waiting in anticipation for him to come out to see, did it, was it okay? Was the sacrifice accepted? Are our sins forgiven? And when that happened, this ripple effect would just take place from the tabernacle out and these cheers and these praisings and these celebrations that, yes, it worked, right? Thinking through that and in reading Hebrews, Jesus is a better high priest. These people, when they were waiting for this priest to come out, they may have had interactions with this man that week. They may know his family. Maybe he threw a rock at their dog earlier that week. You know, this was real life that they were living amongst one another, right? He may have, you know, been in the market and, you know, bought the last piece of bread. Oh, he took the last piece of bread and he didn't, you know, let me get to it. They fought over it. It was like Black Friday in the market kind of thing. You know? <laughs> and they know these people, right? So if you know them intimately and you know their shortcomings, you know these priests were not perfect, were they? They were fallen men. They had sinful problems just like we did. And so you're sitting in your tent waiting, saying, man, I know, I know him. He's not perfect. He knows what to do, and he's going to do his best. But there's a possibility. There's a possibility that God won't accept the sacrifice. And you're just waiting, hoping. The difference between that priest and Jesus is, we know that Jesus is perfect. Amen. We know that his sacrifice was accepted, and there's no possibility of it not being accepted. And thinking through all that, it laid me back to this whole concept of what the doctrine is called preservation of the saints, or eternal security. <clears throat> There's a lot of doctrines in the Bible that that theology, that doctrine, that concept is built upon. And one of those is that Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. He is not going to mess it up. He is the sinless, perfect sacrifice Himself. And we can be guaranteed and sure that as a believer, if you are a believer, you will remain one and you will see God in heaven. And you will be accepted by Him. It's a great thought. It's a very comforting thought. Tom actually read a scripture. I didn't put, add this to my study, but his scripture he read this morning, I want to read it again just because I liked it. His first two verses in Psalms 27, just to kind of put us in the mindset 
of what this means, this <coughs> preservations of the saints, or and some people call it eternal security, right? Or once saved, always saved. There's a bunch of ways people put it. I really like the term preservations of the saints. I just like the way that, that sounds. <clears throat> Psalms 27, his first two verses, he said what? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came up on me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. What a what an encouraging few verses there for a believer. This message today <clears throat> really is to believers. It's a message of encouragement to those that are saved. If you don't know for sure you are, if you're not a believer, if you've never repented, put your faith in Christ, it's a message to you too in that this. You can be sure that you can go to heaven. Without a doubt. There is a way for you to be sure. Any of you that ever share the gospel with people, talk to people, and maybe even before you got saved, you know that there's a, a lot of people out there in this world that aren't sure where they're going. They hope. You say, do you really know what's going to happen when you die? What's, nine times out of ten, people say, well, I hope I go up there. Or I, I'm, I think I'm going to heaven. But there's not a confident assurance. There's not a, a true a hope that is solid. And so if you're not saved, what this message will do, what understanding eternal security will do, will help you realize that you aren't going to heaven at this moment, but you can know without a doubt, 100% for sure, that you can go if you get saved. And for those that are, go to 1 John chapter 5.13. This is a, uh, a verse that we think about a lot when we talk about the preservations of the saints. <clears throat> this is a. Uh, let's go to verse 12 and we'll read this. It says this Apostle John says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that, be- <clears throat> that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. He wrote this thing, this book, and it's a book of just some basic doctrines, and he says here, one of the reasons why he wrote it, he says, I'm writing you these things, I'm teaching you some of these basic doctrines, so that, as a result of you knowing these things, you can, it says what? You can know that ye have eternal life. I was reading through that thing and I was studying that, that verse, figuring out what are some of those words. I love to go and look at the words and figure out what he's meaning. That ye may know. A better way of explaining that phrase or maybe a more deeper understanding of that phrase, ye may know, is, is basically seeing is believing. It's a sense that it's a settled and absolute knowledge. So John is teaching some of these doctrines. He's writing some of these things to believers so that believers can have a settled absolute, convincing, no doubt. I know this. I know it to be true. You can't shake it. You can't convince me any, way, any other way that this is true. 
And what is that knowledge? That knowledge is that ye have. And that ye have is not like, you have it right now. Like, you have your phone, but I could come and steal it from you, right? Or you have a house, but you could lose it. No, this is something you have that is a possession in your hand that cannot be taken from you. You possess this. You own it. It is yours. Is what that ye have means there. So it says right here, he that hath, read it this way. I'm going to make my own amplified version of the Bible. He that hath, you currently possess, the Son has, or you currently possess, life. And you that hath not, those that do not possess the Son of God, do not possess eternal life. In verse 13 it says, These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know, or have a settled and absolute knowledge. I've written these things so that you can have a settled, confident assurance that ye currently possess eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. It's an important verse. John was absolutely confident that if you believe, and you have, if you possess the Son, you're born again, that you have, you possess eternal life. Nowhere in that verse, do you guys see anywhere in that verse the concept of you might have or you hope to someday have? No, it's you have it, it's not taken away from you, it's yours, you possess it, and he wants you to know it too. So there's some biblical support for this. If you go down and... and, and uh, Read through the Bible. You can find a bunch of things that biblically support other than just saying this verse says. Is it, John says it. Well, how do we know it? Well, what John says is I write some things to you. I'm teaching you some doctrines. So what I, my goal, what I wanted to do today was just to go through some basic Christian doctrines, some things that the Bible teach, some even some really thoughts or philosophies that would help undergird the idea that once you get saved, you can't have that taken away from you. It's an important concept. It's really important for me for one, one reason is there was a long part of my Christianity where I didn't believe that. And I used to really argue with people about it. I remember in, when we were living in Haiti the first time, I was absolutely convinced that you could, at some, somehow, some way, a person that was a believer could come to a point where they weren't. And when I look back on that, and also when I talk to people today, if you, you, you ever have a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe in, the, in the, the doctrine of preservation of the saints, when you talk to them, and I was guilty of this, majority of the time they'll pull a couple scriptures that seem to indicate that, and then they'll veer off into experience. They'll use anecdotal evidence, they'll use experience, they'll use real life things. Nine times out of ten, you go up to somebody and you say, I'm telling you, once a person is saved, they can't lose their salvation. And you're saying, where does that say it in the Bible? I say, well, let me show you a few. And they'll go to like Hebrews 6 or something. They'll say, well, look at this. And then you'll read it and they'll say, but I, I know this guy. He was walking with the Lord. He was serving God. He was in church. And now he's not. Or I myself, I know when I was a kid, I was born again. I was baptized. And I walked away from God. You, you catch what they're doing there? They, they may use a scripture 
but they don't use the Bible to really truly support their doctrine. What they do is they use real life experience. And how do we base our understanding of theology and of doctrine? Do we base it off of experience and feeling? Or do we base it off what does the Bible say? When we get on experience and feeling, we're going to get messed up. We're, we're, we're going to be wrong. And that was, what my, that was what I always did. I'd been taught it by people when I first got saved, and so I just kind of assumed it was right, but it also made logical sense to me. Because really, in reality, if you just look at people, teaching the fact that people can lose their salvation kind of makes sense, right? Because you look at people that seem to walk with God. I would see people that I knew were walking with God. My parents were an example of that. They were raised in a church. My mom sang in the choir. Her her grandpa and her uncle were the pastors of the church. They got all this, you know, Christian stuff around them. She 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 would have claimed to have at one point been involved. Uh, my uncle was the same way. He led a youth group. I mean, they 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 were actively involved in the church. These were supposedly pretty good Christian people. And now, they want nothing to do with it. They'll argue the opposite now. And I'd look at it and say, this just don't make any sense. Obviously, somebody can be saved and now not be, because I guarantee you, they're not. The way they act now, they're not saved. There's just no way they can be saved. So what's going on here? And so it would really confuse me. And that's what happens, I believe, a lot of times when people struggle with this doctrine, is they get caught up in what I see happen in real life with what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> and starting off in 1 John, we see that 1 John teaches what? He says, if you understand some basic doctrines of the Bible, do you see where anywhere in there does he say, because of the way those around you are living, and because of the way you are walking with Christ, you can know that you have eternal life. Does he say that? No. What's he say? He says, he that has the Son. And he says, these things have I written. These things that he's taught. I've written you these things so that you can know. I, I want to teach you some doctrine. And so, without trying to take too long, hopefully we can get through all these. Eric, I forgot to count them. I told Eric last night, I said, I've got a list of some really good biblical doctrine and some things that can uh, underpin eternal security. And I was like, I got a nice list of them, and I can't remember how many they were because I listed them alphabetically by numbers. I got A, B, C, D. I was like, I guess I need to go count them so I can say, here, I've got seven things that can help you know that eternal security is true. So somebody keep tracking at the end. Maybe you can tell me how many things I've given you. <clears throat> Some of the biblical support. One of them is this fact. I love this one. This is one we was talking, I think I was talking with Eric last night. Christ's righteousness, not our own righteousness, is the basis for a believer's acceptance and right standing before God. Do you understand what that means? It's, it's this, that, that word propitiation that, that, that they use when they're teaching big Bible seminar, seminary things to make you sound really smart. It's basically this. When you stand before God and He looks at you and he says, you must be perfect. And he looks at you and says, you are perfect. You're righteous. He's not seeing your goodness. What is he seeing? He's seeing the goodness of Christ. 
Christ's righteousness is the only way we are going to be looked at by God as righteous. Okay, done. I'll get to why this is more important, but first thing, let me prove that we're not good enough. Go to 1 Peter 1.16. 1 Peter 1.16 is uh, quoting or referring back to Leviticus. A couple times it says this in Leviticus. He's talking about how we are to live. And he, he begins by saying, holy living is possible. But he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay. He says, be ye holy. What does holy mean? Holy means perfect. How many of us can say, every minute of our lives, we have been perfect? If you want to raise your hand, we'll bring you up here. We'll do about a two-second interview, and it'll be over. You'll sit back down and say, no, no. Right? We know that that's not true. We talk about this often. What does he say? That the law proves to us we fall way short. So if we've fallen short, if we are imperfect, if our righteousness ain't good enough, and our righteousness is going to hinder us from being accepted by God, what do we do then? We know God demands perfection, right? It says, be ye holy as I am holy. What does Isaiah 64, 6 says? On our best day, this is my Brian Fox paraphrase, Isaiah 64, 6 says, on my best day, the very best day I've ever walked with Christ, I've done so good. I've treated everybody kind. I've loved everybody. I haven't even had a terrible thought. I've withheld the joke I wanted to tell about Eric. I've done, I've done so good, right? I, I lied. I told Pastor Larry. <laughs> on my best day, God says, he looks at my behavior and my actions. He says, I can't even really in a public setting explain the word, how he describes them. It's so filthy. It's nasty, filthy, rotten, disgusting to him. It's so bad that if you would describe what he calls them, he calls them filthy rags. But what that is, it's not even really pleasant to talk about. It's disgusting to God. It's repulsive to God. Our best day. God demands perfection. We can't live up to it. So what are we stuck with? Go to Romans chapter 5, 1 to 10. Hopefully we can get all these. says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. And not only so, excuse me, and not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Now read, this is important. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
You read through that. We've been, we went through that in our Romans Bible study with the men, and you pull out the description of who we were when Christ died for us. We were without strength. We were ungodly. We were sinners. And we were enemies. That's how we were. We can't stand before God and be righteous. So what do we do? We know that Jesus Christ is perfect. In 1 John 3, 5 it says, In Him there is no sin. In 2 Corinthians it says, He who knew no sin. In Hebrews 4, 15 it says, Christ was tempted every way in all points exactly as we were. And what does it say? And He committed no sin. He was without sin. So go over to 2 Corinthians real close. 5.20 says this, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. Big word that they use there is called the double imputation of Christ. It's like this. Jesus is right here. Okay, and I'm here. Jesus is perfect. I'm wretched. Uh, we've proven. I I can't stand before God. God looks at me and says, your best day, pointless, it's worthless. Jesus is is God and perfect and holy. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your filthiness and sin and I'm going to put it on Christ. Impute it to him. He's going to be put on the cross and crucified for my sin. Then he's going to be raised from the grave in his perfect, perfected holiness And it doesn't stop there. That's what we say Christ's righteousness was accredited to us. This is the double imputation. Our sin was imputed to Him. If it stopped there, it still wouldn't be enough. His perfect holiness, His righteousness, is put on us. So now when God looks at us, what does He see? He says, I see my Son's righteousness when I look at you. And so how does that support eternal security? Good question. If at any point a person who has had the, the goodness, the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to them, if at any point God were to condemn them to hell, Christ would have to fail at being perfect. Because what is God looking at? Is He looking at me? For me to ever be condemned and say, you're not good enough, you, you failed, you're unrighteous, you're imperfect, you're impure, God would have to be looking at Christ and say, Christ is impure, Christ is imperfect, Christ is no longer righteous. Isn't that neat? So there's just one little tidbit uh, that you can pack away and say, wow, Christ's righteousness would have to fail for me to ever lose my salvation. That's neat. So here's another one. So it's kind of an either or. Either, part one. God's sovereign work of predestination and election are proof for eternal security. So God's, His work, His sovereignty and predestination and election are proof of it. Or, the Bible lied. That's all, you, that's all you're left with. That's right. You, you can't, can't wiggle around it. Either that teaching, that, and what we mean by God's sovereign predestination and election is, God, in His sovereignty, in His perfectness and His holiness said, 
I'm going to call, I'm going to choose, I'm going to justify, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to perfect, I'm going to glorify you. That's his predestination election. I'm going to choose you. It's all me. Either that is true, and that upholds eternal security, or the Bible, because the Bible teaches that very clearly, or the Bible's lying. So, look at it real quickly. Go to Romans 8, 29 to 30. All these are very, I'm going to just hit on these doctrines, and so you can hopefully go and look at them more. If uh, A suggestion, I guess, would be to write down some of these big points, and then go and study them yourself. Say, is what he's talking about true, really, that Christ's righteousness is accounted to me? What does he mean by predestination and election? Is that really taught in the Bible? Romans 8, 29 to 30. The Bible teaches this, that God's predestination and his election does not stop at the moment that we are saved. His predestination carries forth from the moment you're saved. Actually, it goes from eternity past to the moment you're saved unto glorification. And what we mean by glorification is the finished, practical, and positional perfectness, righteousness, perfect standing of us with God in heaven. That's the glorification. His predestination isn't just, I just predestined you to be saved, but then the rest is up to you. No, it carries all the way out. Read Romans 8.29. Okay, it says this. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, here's this is shows the progression of his predestination. It says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and whom he called, then he also justified, whom he justified, then he also glorified. And the next verse says, Well, what do we say then? God before us, who can be against us? The Bible teaches that God's act, His sovereign act of election and predestination carries forth from salvation all the way through to glorification. Either that is true, or it's not. What you have to do is decide, is that true or not? Because for, for if, if uh, eternal security, if that t- thought of predestination is true, then this is true. If it's false, this teaching of predestination, can't you can't have both of them. You can't have God saying, I have determined. This is God. This isn't like me saying, I've determined my child is going to be an NBA superstar. That might happen. That might not, right? If God says, this is going to happen, what are the chances it's going to happen? Okay, so what we have to ask ourselves is, does the Bible teach When God chooses a person for salvation, at the very same time He chooses them to be with Him in heaven. heaven. Is that true? I believe this verse and multiple other ones teach that to be true. You need to ask yourself, is that true? Go study it. Find out. There's plenty. If you're not in the Roman study with the men, go find a, a time when they're meeting, join in, and in about a few months, depending on which one you're in, three years... You'll, you'll find out that that's a very clear doctrine in the Bible. Right? So, what I'm saying is, if God chooses a person, are they ever going to be not chosen? 
Either the Bible teaches that or it doesn't. Okay? It can't teach that and not teach eternal security is what I'm saying. You can't have both. It's either or. So figure out what you believe. I'm telling you the Bible teaches that that is, that is a truth. Amen. Go down to another one. We're going to go to Hebrews 1.3. third point, I want to keep track for myself, it says, in light of eternal security, in being saved, knowing you're saved, knowing you can't lose it, is this concept that works, have no part in salvation. That's important, you think, well, what does that mean? Works have no part in salvation. Some people would say this, I've heard people say this, well, Salvation is not based on works, but keeping it is. Have you heard that? I've, I've said it. When I believed, that's the only, you have to say that to deny eternal security. You have to. Because it's, it's really clear that works do not play a part in salvation. Amen. I mean, boy, you got to just rip out half the Bible and then ignore the rest to, to, to believe that works play anything to do with salvation. So you have to say, you have to come up with this concept of, well, works don't save you, but they keep you. Okay. This is a really, I hate using analogies because they never work right, but I'm going to. Let's say I told my son, listen, I'm going to give you a car when you turn 16. He's like, wow, what do I got to do? I don't have to do anything. Do I have to behave right? No. You can be the worst son ever, but I just love you so much, I'm already telling you now, I'm going to give it to you. All you got to do is just show up. So he's 16 years old, he shows up, he says, Dad, you told me to give me a car. And he's like, yeah, here it is. Gave me the keys, it's parked out back. Well, this is awesome. I don't have to do anything? No, you just had to be my son. You had to show up, I gave it to you. I love you so much. It's a free gift. And he takes off out of the driveway, and a couple days later, I'm like, give me the keys. What are you talking about, give me the keys? It's like, well, you know, lately I've noticed you've been kind of disrespectful to your, ch- to my, your brothers. You haven't really been very kind to them lately, and so you've lost the car. Talking about, you said this was a free gift that you just gave me because you love me, because I'm your son. Well, it was, but now I'm taking it back because you didn't behave right. It never was a free gift. If I took it back because of the way he behaved, that gift had strings from the very beginning, didn't it? That's right. He... He earned that gift. Whether he earns it to get the keys or whether he earns it by keeping it, he's earning it no matter what. So you can't, it's an illogical statement to say salvation is a free gift, but you have to work to keep it. It's illogical. It doesn't work out in logic because in the end, whether you behave beforehand, during, or after, you're still behaving and working in a way to maintain or get the gift you have. Does that make any sense? So, works play no role in salvation pre, during, or after. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it's very, very clear. Hebrews 1.3. I wish it would have been clear to me earlier on. But, I'm thankful that God is, is long-suffering. Okay, this is great. Hebrews 1.3 says this. Who being, talking of Christ... 
the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand, the majesty on high. Okay. I'll just use another picture. Jesus Christ dies on the cross, presents the offering, comes back from the dead, gift accepted. And what does he do? Does he stand there saying, okay, salvation is prepared. I just hope they do it. No, what does he do? He says he sits down. This is done. I've done all that needs to be done. There's nothing left to do. All they need to do is accept it. Amen. There's nothing left. What does it say? He, I love the way, the. I don't know what other versions put it. I didn't look, but it says, He had by Himself purged our sins. What does purged mean? Get Just take all, every bit, and blow it out. by himself purged our sins. Does it say he with a little effort from his friends? No. Does it say he hoping that we would help him in the end? No. What does it say? He by himself purged our sins. That's That's such a beautiful concept. It's so... Once I finally grasped this, I was like, this is awesome. This, this is, this is. If you don't believe this, it's very, very difficult concept because you do look around and say, oh, "I want." I still want to do it, and I believe this concept. I still want to look around and say, "Yeah, but God, they're just going to trample your name. They're going to say they're saved, and they're not, and they're acting like this." And they're going around saying, I'm saved. Look, it says, if I've been saved, I'm always saved. And I don't have to do anything. But the fact is, what does it say? He by himself purged our sins. We didn't do anything to deserve it, to earn it, or to keep it. Because that is true, we can't do anything to lose it. Nothing. If you can't do anything to get it, how do you do anything to lose it? Romans 4, 5. Another wonderful verse. How does the Bible describe salvation? Think about this, guys. Think. Think right here. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's pretty plain, right? To him that worketh not. Him that doesn't work. But by faith are you saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is another one. By grace you are saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Titus 3, 5. Pretty plain here it says... We'll go to four. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior towards men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Bible is so clear. Works play nothing in it. A lot of people want to run over to James and say, James says you're justified by your works. Say, of course you are. Go study that. Says you're justified before other people. Your works prove you're saved. Your works, other people look and say, that man's saved. I'm justified in the eyes of man. It's 
very clear that we are justified in the eyes of God, not by works, but by Jesus Christ alone. If there is a sin, think about this one. I love the, the, the commentary I was reading on one of these on this concept here. They put this. If there is a sin which would send a child of God, not sin that would send people. There's all kinds of sins listed. If there is a specific sin or a type of sin that would send a believer, a child of God, to an eternal torment in hell, then the work of cross is insufficient. And has not sufficiently made atonement for all sins. And don't you think God would have said, watch out for this sin. Don't you think if there was something, people always say it's the sin, you know, I, I, can, I can walk away. I can choose to walk away. Nothing else can, can separate me, but I can say I'm done. I don't want no more to do with it. Wouldn't God have said, very clearly, if a person decides they're done and they don't want no longer to be saved, I will accept that and I will cast them out. Don't you think he would have said that? But he didn't. He didn't say that. Then, so his atonement perfectly deals with all sin. That's the next one. Go to Galatians 3.13. Not only is it not by our works, because our works... Remember what they are? Filthy rags? He's righteous. He did it. Not us. But his atonement, when he paid the penalty, here's another one. We think, okay, well maybe his atonement paid for my sins up to salvation. And maybe even in that day when I was saved. But his atonement paid for all, all sins. Past, present, and future. Galatians 3.13. Amen. says this, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. There's that imputation again. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Do you see that word hath in there? That's a past tense word. Right? He hath redeemed us from the law. In Ephesians 1, 7, shows it again in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace this idea of Christ paying for sin it's past tense he has paid the penalty it's it's done he's perfectly paid for all sins past tense to him in other words they would say this people would say you can get saved but you may commit a sin in the future that will put you out no, from his perspective, remember this, I had this thought going through it, is we are so bound by time that it messes us up a little bit. God is outside of time. When he paid the penalty, his atonement paid for sins, it was a past tense action for him. Does that make sense? Our sins may be in the future, but he had paid for them sins. It's a, it's a past tense looking back on all sins in the past from the future past. Does that, make, does that make sense? Am I talking in circles? <laughs> Go down to Hebrews 
Hold your hand there and, and look at 28. We're going to read both of them together. 9.12 says this, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in, how many times? Once into the holy place, having, another past tense, obtained eternal redemption for us. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. It says that he has one time paid a penalty for all of our sins, the sins of many. That's every one that believes in him. If there is a sin, again, let me say that, that could send somebody to hell, don't you think the Bible would tell us what it is? Don't you think that God would say, this one sin, Christ's payment, his atonement, it wasn't good enough. Christ's atonement perfectly, perfectly deals with all, all sin. Another one, next point is this. Christ, this is another support of the fact that you cannot lose your salvation. Christ is our advocate and our intercessor. You ever think about that? You've got the best lawyer and the best intercessor on the planet interceding and pleading on your behalf. 1 John 2 1. Flip over there. It says this My little children. Who's he writing this to again? 1 John? It's to believers, right? These things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's say I've been born again. Let's say I'm walking with God. And let's just say I commit a sin. Is that possible? Very, very likely. Probably by the end of the day. Something. Right? What happens when I sin? It says we have an advocate. What's an advocate's job to do? Is to speak on behalf of the, the guilty party to the judge. We have the perfect advocate. He goes before the Lord and he says, they're innocent. He says, Romans says there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, Right? What an easy case he has. He already paid the penalty for the crime committed. And as the lawyer stands before the father and says, I, I, I realize that there's been a, a sin committed here, but I'm going to present my, my uh, person here as innocent. And just says, well, how can they be innocent? He says, you can't bring condemnation against them. The penalty has already been paid. Think about that. That's, your, that's what your advocate does when you commit a sin. How wonderful that is. Why would we want anything different than that? To think when I commit a sin, say, God, forgive me. And Christ says, you are forgiven. And he stands before the Father and says, client, here's my client. And he's innocent. And the reason he's innocent is the penalty's been paid. You can't judge him guilty. Fine has been paid in full. You cannot condemn him. It's a wonderful thought. He's our advocate. What about this? Hebrews 9. Oh, I, already, I need to go down. Hebrews 7. Sorry. 
Pastor Lindsay reads this verse all the time. And it is a wonderful, comforting verse. 24 and 25. Not only is He our advocate when we sin, but what else is He? He's our intercessor to help keep us from sinning. 24 and 25 says this. Where, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Do you realize Jesus Christ is eternal, right? Okay, so his ministry of intercession will never come to an end as far as, as our lives are concerned. There's never a time, there's never a day, there's never a place where we are going to be without somebody. And that somebody is God, the Savior, praying on our behalf that God would keep us from sin. Not only forgive us when we do, but He's praying on our behalf that God would keep us. How do we know that? Well, let's see how Jesus prays for His believers. Go to John 17. This should be encouraging. Anybody ever wake up and know that you're going to have to struggle with sin today? And you're thinking, man, I hope I can make it. And then you think back and say, my Savior is in heaven praying for me right now. And here's how he prays. And now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus, if you go down to verse 20, it says this. Is he just praying for his disciples? People say, well, that's his prayer for his disciples. No, it says, verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus Christ is praying that God would keep you, would hold you, would help you. For the saint to lose their eternal home and glory, Christ would have to fail as both our advocate and our intercessor. That's a great thought. And he's, side note, he's not going to fail at that. So what are you left with? Another one is this. As believers, we are sealed. It says the Holy Spirit has a ministry. And it's a sealing ministry. The Holy Spirit seals the believer. And when He seals them, it's this act of denoting ownership, endorsement, and protection from tampering. Thinking about you know, a letter. Everybody thinks about a letter that's been sealed. What does that letter being sealed do? It denotes who it belongs to, who it was intended to, Right? It denotes an endorsement. You can put a seal on something and say, I endorse this letter, I endorse this. What else does it do like on a letter if you seal something, seal it closed? You know that if it's been tampered with, right? People look at it and say, well, I, can't, I can't tamper with that because it's been sealed. My understanding is if a king or something put a seal on something and you tampered with it, you lose your life. I mean, it's a big deal. Don't tamper with the king's seal, right? The Holy Spirit is that seal on the believer. When he indwells the believer, you've been sealed by him. Go to Ephesians 4.30. It says this. 
And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until you commit a sin that God deems necessary to send you to hell. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The day you believe, put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, until when? Until the day of redemption. Until Jesus Christ, we called it glorification, until you are brought home and redeemed and made perfect, complete, practically, in His image. Holy Spirit seals the believer. Amen. And then as that part of that sealing ministry, there's two kind of parts to it. You're in Ephesians. Go to chapter 113. And something else that he calls the Holy Spirit here in sealing it. It says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And what does it say the Holy Spirit of promise is? It says, which is the earnest of our inheritance until when? Same thing again. Until when? Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Who's the purchased possession? Me, you, the believer. Unto the praise of His glory. When the Holy Spirit seals us, He says it's like an earnest. It's an earnest down payment saying... I promise you've been saved. The Holy Spirit dwells you. He seals you. And it's a promise from God that I will come to get you. You are mine now. Nobody will tamper with you. Here's my earnest. Here's my, here's my intent to prove that I am going to redeem you. Here's the Holy Spirit. The other thing that it calls it is a pledge. Uh, 2 Corinthians one two. Sorry, 5-5. Five, five. It says the earnest again. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing as God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. And in Romans 8-23, which we know that one, right? He calls it, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it, the redemption of our body. It shows the, the, the Holy Spirit is this earnest, this pledge, this first fruits of saying, you have the Holy Spirit, you've been born again, I will do what I said I'm going to do. What does it say? I will redeem your body. You will be redeemed. Does it say anywhere in any of these scriptures that the Holy Spirit is a pledge until you mess up? Or until you say, I've, I, I had enough, I'm done. No, it says until the redemption of your bodies. That's vital. For in, in this idea, this, this thought, for a person, a believer to lose their salvation, the Holy Spirit would have to fail at its ministry of sealing. In other words, when we were sealed by the, the Holy Spirit, He would have to fail at that. 
God would have to be a liar. God would have to say, I've sealed you. I'm giving my earnest. I'm pledging. I changed my mind. Where does he say that? And nowhere in those verses does he say this pledge, this earnest, like you might do with a house, is contingent upon anything, does he? He says, it is there. He doesn't say, here's my pledge, here's my earnest. I'm sealing you with an earnest that is contingent upon something. I don't see that anywhere. Does anybody have it in your translation where it says, if you do this? No, it doesn't. It says, the pledge and seal is based upon what we say earlier. The righteousness of Christ, not us. And there's some promises as well. Let's go over those. Those are some of the doctrines and just some of the basic promises. Go to John 5.24. There's some promises in the Bible that help support this as well. My goal is to give you some underpinning truth from the Bible that you will be able to say either those things are true and they support, they have to be true for eternal security to be true and if eternal security isn't true those things can't be true, these things we're discussing they can't coexist and so I'm giving you these so you can go and study them, learn them look at them and say, wrestle with them find the scriptures, figure out what the Bible says John 5.24 says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but, has, but is passed from death unto life. If you rephrase that verse, you can say this, The believer hath everlasting life. Dr. Kershey loves the King James. He'll make fun of you if you don't use the King James He'll almost consider you a heretic, I believe, at times. <laughs> but he, he's really funny. But he, because of that, there's some things in there that he's pointed out that I never even knew. I just liked it because I started reading it. And I just kept it. You know those THs? They, they, they denote a, a continuity. There, there's a continuation. Well, that, There's a reason they put those in there. And those THs, when you see them in the King James Bible, refer to a continuation. And it says there, he that hath, it means it's a past tense, you already have it, but that TH means it's a continuing on. When you read that, it shows that if you go back and study the Greek language, you'll find that those have this tense of a past tense continuing on. So it says, you hath everlasting life, and you shall not come into condemnation, but what else is past from death unto life. This is all at the moment of salvation. This is not a future tense verse here saying, He, what does it say? He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me will have everlasting life and will not come into condemnation and will someday pass from death to life. It doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? It says, you have this. You have it and you always will. The continuing on. You have it. At this moment, you have eternal life. I wish I would have read some of these things. And, and I wish somebody would have explained them to me. Let me put it that way a little better. Because how can you have something eternal and lose it? By definition, eternal is what? Forever? You have eternal 
Not quite eternal life. It's impossible. You have eternal life. That means it's not going to end. It's, it's really simple when you start studying it and thinking about it. But boy, it can be difficult if you don't look at it. If you look at it by looking at people. I, I, I go back to that every time, at least for me. If I look at people, it gets hard. If I look at God and His Word, it really gets simple. Also, myself. I think that was probably my biggest problem. I know me. And I know what, at times how I behave. And that's scary to think, God, you're still going to accept me? And I did that. But He will. Romans 8 1. Another wonderful, fabulous verse. And we were talking about <clears throat> Christ as our advocate. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which, walk, which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What is there? Those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Commit a sin. Somebody says, you better get right, you're going to hell. How's that possible? You can't condemn me. Nobody can condemn me. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I stand before God and He says, what? Because of the righteousness of Christ and the penalty, the perfect atonement that He paid, you are innocent. I can't. I can't. I can't even say you are not guilty. Not guilty or forgiven. It's used all through the Bible, but I even have at times I'm like, boy, that doesn't really say it right because forgiven says, I'm going to let you go, but you're wrong. And the Bible describes us as perfect. The righteousness of Christ. We are innocent. I love that thought. Okay, there's a couple places in the Bible where it uses double negatives. This is one of the verses that first turned me around to start saying, here's the point it got me to. I still denied it. I had trouble with it. I said, when I start looking at the whole Bible, I got to believe that a person that is saved cannot lose their salvation but man, there's some verses in there that really mess with me. And so what I have to do is just admit, I must not fully comprehend those verses that don't make sense because the ones that are clear are crystal clear. And so I must not understand some of these. And these are the verses, this, both of these, my friend took me aside, sat down, and he said, look at this. They're so simple, but yet they, they turn me just enough to say, well, I must not get it. So I'm going to go with, you can't lose your salvation. And put a little parenthesis. There's a few that I really have trouble with, but I must not get them. And that's, where, that's, that's the, the first step I really took in, in really understanding this. And that's the double negatives. Hebrews 13.5. In Greek, I wish I knew more about it. I just got to take other people's word for it. In Greek, if we say, um, <clears throat> I don't even know how to use them. I'm so bad at grammar. If you use a double negative, say, I will not never do it. You're basically saying what? I will do it. A double negative in English makes a positive, I guess, is the way we say it. In Greek, double negatives add emphasis. They say it, it, it increases what it means. So when you use a, a double, double negative in, in Greek, it would say this. Like if you're using the double negative of no, never, not, never. It says, I will never positively not. It will never happen. It's unthinkable. There is not even the slightest 
possibility that this will happen. So Hebrews 13.5. You know this verse very well. It says this. Let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That verse in Greek has five negatives. Five times. And so you could rewrite that verse to say this. I will never, no never, leave thee. No never, forsake thee. Never, 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 no never. It's impossible. It can't ever happen once you have been born again. There's a... When my friend was teaching it to me, he was like grabbing. He said, no, he's never. You can't do nothing. There's nothing he's going to do. Nothing can get you away from him. He will be there. It was like, he says, that's what the Greek is basically saying. It's like just screaming at you. And in John, 637 is another one. It's, this is actually a true double negative. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. We could just stop there. That's everything the Father gives me comes to me. Jesus is going to lie. No. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You could restate this one. I will never, no, never. It will never happen. It can't possibly happen. Cast him out. He read that verse to me and I was like, what am I going to do now? I've been arguing with people all this time. And boy, I must, have a, I must have a serious misunderstanding with some of these other verses. So I'm going to go and try to learn what they mean, try to understand them in light of what's clear. Because I'm unclear on some other ones. But I know what I'm clear on is He will never, no, never cast you out. That's pretty emphatic. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, another wonderful verse. There's this fact that as a believer, we cannot be separated from the love of Christ. And I've heard people say this. I've talked to people. I've got a friend that we share the gospel with every week downtown, and me and him, we kind of go back and forth on this one and laugh at each other. He's a, you know, it's kind of one of those, it's, it's okay that you're wrong. He tells me that all the time. But um, he says... This verse speaks of the love of Christ, not salvation. You've got to really want to have people that are born again go to hell to pull that out of there. Yes, it does speak of the love of Christ, but what is the love of Christ? He died for us. He set us free. He delivered us. It says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We can't be separated by any power or any force. can't be separated by any other creature or living thing. And there you go back to the, but what about if you just say, I went out? Last thing I checked, I was another creature. I was a living thing. So it says none, no other to say. Creature, that would be me. I'm a, a living, breathing thing. I can't even separate myself from the love of Christ. 
1 Peter 1, 3, and 5. I just got a couple more in here I wanted to show you. We could keep going for hours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, is, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven. Can you imagine showing up to heaven and saying, sorry, your reservation has been canceled? But Jesus made the reservation. Yeah, well, we didn't hold it for Him. That's impossible. It was reserved for you in heaven. A reservation means it's going to be there when you get there, and it's not like a hotel downtown that might cancel it. He's not, right? God is able to keep us from falling. We're protected by His power. Read verse 5, talking about us, and says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our reservation is solid and secure. And why is that? Who holds it? Who are kept by the power of myself? I hope not. By the power of God, through faith and to salvation, it's ready to what? Be revealed. It's not hoping to be revealed. It's ready to be revealed. He says, I got it right here and I'm holding on to it. I have your reservation. When you get here, I'm going to reveal it. It's pretty amazing. God is able to keep us from falling. Jude 24, just a couple verses back. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I guess I wasted about an hour and half of your time because we could have just read that, right? Unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I'm more powerful than God. He's able to present me faultless before God. I'm going to do something. I'm going to determine, say, no, I want out. It's like, no, you're mine now. I'm going to present you faultless. I'm more powerful than God? I don't think so. God is all powerful. And it says he will present you faultless. Why? One of the first points, because we stand in front of God with the righteousness of Christ. Another kind of a sub-point is this. Nowhere in the Bible is the idea taught that salvation can be lost. Now I know there's, when you, if you go out and you start talking to people, they're going to run Hebrews chapter 6. There's a, there's a lot of what we call problem passages. or ones that would seem difficult. These are the ones that I hung on to that I struggled with. Nowhere in the Bible does it say there's a way for you to lose your salvation. Go to 1 Corinthians 3.15. We're going to finish up right here. Uh-oh. My child, on the other hand. This 
is an interesting verse. It does say this. As a believer, you may have work, you may do things in your life that aren't worthy, that are shameful, that aren't good, that aren't going to pass on into heaven. Despite those things, you still will pass into heaven. It says this, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. The, the way you live, the things you do, your works on this earth, they might be burned, they might not, might not pass through. But he himself shall be saved. The Bible does say that. It doesn't say, if you have this work that is unworthy and not good enough, then you're going to be burned up and you'll be burned up with it. No, it says you may lose that work. It'll be burned up. It'll be taken away. But you yourself will be saved. That's the promise of the Bible. So how do you handle... Oh, I knew it was going to take forever anyway, so I, I was going to go into at least a couple of the problem passages. But here's what I come to. I said, you know what? I could take time sitting here and discussing it. But what did John say? Go back over to First John again. verse that we started with. It says, These things have I written unto you that believe on me, that believe on the name of the Son of God. I could say this. These things I've taught you. These doctrines that are in the Bible. I've taught you so that you may know that you have eternal life. What happens if you walk out of here today and you go home and somebody says, Man, I want to learn some more about that and you go on the internet. And you start finding some scriptures that people put out there that say, wow, maybe I can lose my salvation. These scriptures seem to show that. What's the first thing you should remember? All these very clear doctrinal truths in the Bible that show either these things are true, therefore eternal security is true, or all these things we talked about today are not true. So for eternal security... To not be true, and to, for those passages that people are going to throw out and say, well, these are real difficult. Look, they show you can lose your salvation. For those passages to actually teach you can lose your salvation, all these other truths that we covered today would have to be false. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? The atonement, the righteousness of Christ, the, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, that God can't, won't leave you. All, the, the, all these things that we went over. You have to get rid of them. They have to be false for those passages to teach that you can lose your salvation. So how do you handle that? First thing you do is you relax and say, well, I know these things are true. Eric had a really neat way to say it, and I said, I'm going to make you say it today. My, my, my way to say it is this. Every time you study the Bible, it's like Bible 101. What do you do? The clear always interprets the unclear. You go with what you know is very clear and easy to understand. And that says, okay, well there's now my foundation on which how I'm going to approach and study the thing that may be not quite clear. That I can't quite understand. I know what's true. I know what's clear. It's easy to read this one. Now I'm going to take that and put it over top of what I'm not really sure of and say, okay, now how can I best understand this? Okay? So that gives you a little bit of a piece. And then... The other thing that that does is it helps you without fear to go study those. Because you don't have to be afraid saying, what if it proves I'm wrong? You know what's clear, right? So you know 
the way I, I approached it was, well, then I must be wrong. I must misunderstand this. So I said, I'm going to just study and study and study. And you know what you'll find out? If you start studying all those ones that they call problem passages, you'll find out <clears throat> that they're not really that problematic. That there's some very good answers. A lot of them will be solved if you'll just read the whole book. Go f- read that book of the Bible or read that whole chapter. Go find a commentary. Go talk to somebody and they'll, they'll solve them. But let the clear interpret the unclear. And then let the clear doctrines of Scripture, let the Bible, the clear things that you know to be true, the foundational Scriptures, give you, like John said, an assurance that you are saved. And if you are saved, you will remain saved. We will, those that are saved, those that are believed, we will, this is a guarantee, Stand before God, righteous, pure and holy someday. That's an amazing thing for me. That's exciting. That's so comforting. If that wasn't true, I would live my life in utter despair. But it is true. Amen. So let's take this time thinking about this. What Christ did for us is so perfect. He is so perfect. And salvation is so perfect that we can take communion as an act of worship for what he's done. We don't have to enter into a fearful saying, well, I hope I'm good enough. We can say, I'm not. But you are. Isn't that wonderful?